Hey, everybody. Welcome to the I Can't Help You podcast. Um, I am here in the studio uh, and very, very excited to welcome my friend Sanford Shapiro to the show. We have been friends for for a long time. We can go into that in a little while. But if you don't know Sanford, Sanford Shapiro is a learning disability specialist and educational consultant who is a highly sought-after trainer and speaker noted for his ability to bridge gaps between therapy and cognitive science. He has been interviewed on TV and in print for insights into learning differences and social-emotional concerns. He's helped start and develop schools for kids and teens with learning differences. Sanford has had a brilliant career as a teacher, trainer, school director, and special needs consultant. His knowledge is steeped in research and heart, born from personal and family experience, as well as professional and clinical work. Known for his success with dyslexic learners and those on the autism spectrum, Sanford's mission has always been grounded by sharp insights about the day-to-day lives of children and adults who learn differently. Sanford, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Danny. Hi. I'm just sitting here laughing. (laughs) He's like, hi, Danny. (laughs) Danny, are we playing right now? We do. Um, But we've talked about this for a long time, my friend. We've talked about this for a long time, and I'm glad we're finally doing it. So welcome. Me too. Yeah, thanks. I was laughing because, you know, who writes, who tends to write these bios? (laughs) The people who the bio's about usually, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, what if, what if we wrote the bios like, like, you know, sort of aligned with your title of I can't help you. Like Sanford <laughs> Shapiro is, you know, he, he's been around a long time and he's made a sh- crap load of mistakes. Yeah. But, you know, through it, he's really learned a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of like, or, what, if, what if our bios read like, you know, a- along the path of self-doubt and periodic self-hatred, he's come to realize exactly. that you're... <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly it's the same it's the same kind of idea of like social media and you know everybody talks right. about it that it's a highlight reel it's not real but if you basically right. were to take a selfie on the day you can't get out of bed and just be like can't do it today you know that yeah. it, it'd actually yeah. be a kind of a cool world you know and the few times that i have posted things that have been more vulnerable you know people seem to respond to it really well because you're just you're not used to that right they're used to like here's the shiny balloon or whatever right yeah so. yeah but anyway, like um, Sanford, you're, Sanford, you're in Ecuador right now. That's kind I am, of and I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm 8,300 feet high, so I'm I'm uh, I'm, we, I'm más alto uh, than you. Más alto in indeed. Más alto indeed. Yeah. Well, Sanford, so yeah. I'm really excited you're here, and just you know, a little history on the show. So Sanford and I are, are people who have known of each other for a really long time, like 30 years. But I think really over the last couple have started to develop a relationship, really just between us, and a lot of that had to do with mutual people that we knew. And I think, as sad as it sounds, some of these people have died now, and it's kind of brought us closer yeah. together. A couple of our friends have died, and people that we were mutually close to, Saul, may you rest in peace, and um, now Bill Lane, and uh, you know a couple others, but. Uh, um, you know, one of the things that I know about you is that, you know, we go back to a similar organization, back to the CDU days. We both worked there around the same time. And one of the yeah. things I remember is that you were talking about these things called learning disabilities and, and dyslexia and how 
you know, it's not always the same level playing field for everybody coming into therapeutic programs. And some people have different processing. You were saying this stuff. I can remember it. You were saying this stuff yeah. long before this became mainstream and people started to recognize or even talk about being on the spectrum or talk about dyslexia. Mm -hmm. um, so it, does it feel like people are starting to come around? <laughs> I guess that's my question for you. You've been talking about this for a while. You've been a real champion. Do you feel like times have changed? Well, I know that's a good question. I know I've changed, hmm. um, so I, I, I look at things differently. You know, I will just say this, that we've got a long way to go. Hmm. However, you know, we're moving in the right direction, hmm. uh, particularly in the, in the treatment and therapeutic world. Hmm. Um, you know, even, even though that is arguably not the focus of residential treatment centers or, you know, young adult programs, uh, the focus is, you know, on emotional growth and therapeutic concerns, but since so many uh, of the, the kids that are in treatment have either diagnosed or undiagnosed learning differences, um, the, the opportunity and the, the, you know, it's pretty high stakes that we, that we continue on the path to get it mm. more right and more right. Mm. And I'm still learning myself. Talk to me a little bit about that because it is sort of interesting learning differences do we, is everybody learned differently or do we have kind of this, this, you know, sort of range of, uh, hate these words, but we'll just use them as signposts. This range of kind of normal, right? Like traditional education suits pretty well X percent of the population. And then X percent of the rest of the population kind of struggles within that because they have different processing. Can you, can you give me a lay of the land on that? What's your, what's your read on that? Like, does everybody have a learning differences or some more profound than others? Like... Help me out as someone who doesn't know much about this. Sure, I'll do my best. Um, you know, when I picture, remember, picture that, you know, that classic bell curve, mm. you know, um, uh, you know, so we all have, you know, a range of abilities, whatever you're looking at, whatever human trait we're talking about, whether it's left-handedness, right-handedness, color of your eyes, color of your hair, um, how easily you learn to read, how quickly you can start to understand body language. Those are all capacities that we all share to one extent or another. The question is, you know, where do we fit in on that, you know, bell curve that people sometimes really don't like, but it is helpful for us. So most people, you know, let's say when it comes to the area of learning differences, um, most people, you know, have certain abilities and they're on that bell curve um, when it comes to how easily they learn to read and spell. Mm. And some people are further on the one end of it where it's super easy and uh, super efficient. And then some people, you know, but much fewer are, you know, on the other side of that bell curve where it's much more difficult. Mm. So, you know, the answer is that, yeah, it's both. We all have a, a there's a pretty broad range of variation and how easily we learn things, what things we seem to be, you know, have affinity, affinities for. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, and then comes the part about, well, how do you develop those capacities? And the other thing real quickly is that wherever you land on that curve of human variations, you know, really you have to start taking a look at, well, what's the society they're in or what's the culture they're in and how much does that capacity impact their daily lives? 
So, for example, learning to read is a really big one, mm. you know, and the impact of whether you're fast or slow or whether it's easy or hard has tremendous impact. But then again, think about the difference between being in an inner city uh, school with maybe lowered expectations mm. because of various reasons or, at, you know, or else you're at, you know, Yale mm. University. And so that cohort sort of t- makes it a real difference on how much that variation impacts you. Mm. Sanford, this is a really simple question, but one I'd love to hear you answer from my understanding and that of our listeners. Like, what is dyslexia? Dys- ah, dyslexia is... Um, it's generally speaking uh, a brain-based illustration of our, our those learning differences or that variation that we all have, and it's particularly in the area of language development, but not in the language development that we are used to thinking about. So, um, it is generally for most people a weakness in or an inefficiency in kind of playing around with individual parts of speech sounds. Mm. Uh, You know, like hearing the difference between the I in him and the a in cat. You know, when a Mm. four-year-old shows signs of that kind of difficulty, you know, that can result in much more uh, difficult time learning how to read and spell. Mm. So dyslexia becomes then a definition where... You know, it's a brain-based learning difference that uh, that impacts unexpectedly and otherwise reasonably bright to super bright to not so bright people. Um, who, who, but nonetheless, regardless of their intelligence, they have a extra struggle in learning to read, write, and spell. And they have other pieces that can go along with that difficulty reading and spelling. So, for example. Uh, some people with dyslexia, you know, have difficulty with certain aspects of directionality, right and left, up and down. But it's usually more about the words that we associate with those things. So they may have trouble, you know, coming up with saying left or right. But if you used landmarks like the hills towards the hillside or towards the river, mm. they'll be much better. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So it's more of a language processing. Yeah. So so back so in the day, like when, when, you know, before this was known and able to be diagnosed and at least a level of awareness there, my guess is, you know, people were just kind of dismissed as not smart or um, incapable. And that's not the case at all, right? What we're talking about is a different way of processing or a different way of learning, but not in... Right. incapability of learning. Am I correct in that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the parts of the science behind this takes a look at human development. And, you know, just as a backdrop to the, your question is, humans seem to be uh, wired, you know, from a development point of view, they're wired to be able to learn how to speak. Mm. You know, children learn how to speak without a lot of instruction. You know, unless they're raised by wolves, they'll learn to speak. But because reading and written language is a relatively new uh, human enterprise, Mm. uh, we're not really wired yet to learn how to read. We have to be taught. Mm. Uh, So, you know, that's that's sort of the science background. But um, tell me your question again. 
Um, well, I was just wondering, you know, is, you know, historically not knowing oh, what yeah. it was probably right. really put a bias in a, in, you know, in an untrue kind of outlook on some of these children as students, right? Right. right. Like yeah, maybe they're considered the, dumb versus just processing differently, right? Right, yeah. right. I mean, even though we have a long way to go and even though, um, you know, from my vantage point, kids with learning differences are still suffering great shame, Hmm. great isolation and loneliness and misunderstanding, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, let alone 40 years ago, things were much, much worse. Hmm. And, you know, probably the best example that I could give, which I just recently posted about is a guy named Philip Schultz, who in somewhere about 2009, won the Pulitzer Prize for poetry. Guy is brilliant with expressing himself with language, but he was one of these people who was who was put into, you know, those special ed classes that were seen as the dummy classes. Mm. And he has achieved great success, but the mental anguish that he suffered, that he still acknowledges, the pain, the anger, and the shame were really, really profound. Mm. And it, it, you know, so there's, yeah, that's probably the best example I could come up with. If you read his poetry, you'll, you'll see the, and you'll feel the, he doesn't always address dyslexia. In fact, he often doesn't in his poetry, but you feel the anguish and the anger and the shame that still haunts him that's related to feeling isolated and an outlier. How did you become interested in this work? Like, talk, talk a little bit about your path and, and what brought you. I mean, I, I joke around about this, but very seldom with any of my guests are, you know, people were four years old in the, uh, you know, sandbox saying, you know, I'm going to focus on learning differences when I'm older and how that, inter- you know, how, tell me about your path and how you, how you arrived to, to this work. Sure. So I was like the illustrious Bill Lane. You got to keep bringing that dude's name up. It's uh, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, mm. and I grew up at a time, you know, when there really weren't very many helicopter parents. I mean, my childhood was kind of wild and free and untended, and I grew up, you know, in a middle class family, but um, but was able to do, you know. I was able to explore that world of streets and schoolyards, you know, without a lot of oversight. Um, and, and, and that was, that was, that was great. Um, but, you know, I grew up in a way where also I was from, you know, a, a family, a wonderful, great family, but, you know, who had their own psychodynamics and, you know, my mom was pretty uh, passionate and, dysregulated at times and you know had some pretty dysregulated anger at times and my father on the other hand was a peacemaker Hmm. and i was i don't know how much this enters into it but you know part of my story is i'm a middle child and for various reasons in my nuclear family i grew up feeling not quite invisible but you know i felt like i had to do extra stuff to stand out i guess is one way to look at it. Um, and anyways, you know, but a, but a good childhood in a lot of ways. And at, by the time I became a teenager, 
still holding on to this feeling of being somewhat unseen and unrecognized and um, and and misunderstood. I kind of at one point pretty consciously, maybe I was 17 or 18, I made a kind of a vow to myself that I'd never forget what it was like to be a teenager. Hmm. And um, and and so that probably helped shape me towards um, towards moving towards an education degree. And I was always interested, I suppose, in what makes people tick, hmm. because I was trying to figure out myself as a as a long distance runner and a loner hmm. in some ways, um, you know, inward kind of guy. I, uh, you know, I was struggling with some of those kinds of things, and and but that drew me towards psychology. Anyways, I graduated with a degree in uh, in learning disabilities, but also psychology. And I was much more interested in kind of the emotional content of kids. And I wound up uh, working as my first full-time job at a residential treatment center in, uh, in Australia, as it turns out. And it, you know, it kicked my butt. I mean, I didn't, I had degrees, but I didn't know what I was doing. Hmm. And, um, you like, you know, in, I had, in, in relationship with the students and the administration or just like the stuff I learned here isn't necessarily applicable in what I'm doing in this job. Tell me more about that. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, all of the above. Mm -hmm. My first day of work, I was supposed to just be observing. And I walked into the, um, to the hallway of the academic building. And all of a sudden, this wild looking 13 year old girl was running towards me. And then she took a left turn. And she started jumping out the window. And I found myself wrestling with her in the window trying to keep her from going out. Whoa. And I Welcome to the job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is, you know, I get this was in the late 70s. And I thought my job as a teacher was to, you know, relate to kids and to save the world. Hmm. And here I was wrestling. I had no knowledge about de-escalation techniques. Hmm. Um, I, I, you know, and so long story short is, you know, eventually um, I talked her down. You know, we made a series of agreements which she kept breaking, but finally, um, and I should say that the window was on the first floor, so it's not as quite as dramatic as I <laughs> made it sound. But, but it's, no, no, you know, let's but edit I, that I, out. I, I, let's let's well, say it was I, on the eleventh floor. I like that better. Was, yeah, yeah, but 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 to me, it felt like the eleventh floor. Sure. You know, first day of job, and and I went through that year working at at, a, at this RTC, and um, and I learned a lot. But at the end of it, I kind of vowed, okay. That's not for me. Like I, th these kids that seem aggressive, um, you know, I, I need to go back to what I really know, which are the learning disabilities, mm. you know, even though I still have plenty to learn. Well, you know, you know, I keep saying long story short and then I make it a long story. That's me. But 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 in truth, I've been, you know, in the beginning of my career, I was torn and going back and forth between working and even starting schools for kids with dyslexic profiles and yet keep running into the therapeutic aspect, the, mm. the emotional growth that really attracted me. And that pretty much shaped the, 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 the tension between those two things because, of course, once you start to dig into it, you see many, if not most of the kids, you know, in those treatment settings had extreme academic struggle 
Mm. And oftentimes it was because of learning differences. Mm. And mm. so I had to find my way into a middle ground. And, um, and, and frankly, eventually I, I, I married a woman with two kids. And, you know, as, as luck would have it, you know, one of them um, is dyslexic and ADD and struggles in a lot of ways. And, and so that brought me to a whole other level of, whoa, mm. I kind of know what I'm doing, but I got a lot left to learn. Sure, sure. And and and, and th- this is kind of an interesting, you know, one thing that we've talked about before is that it seems that, you know, 40, 60%, somewhere in there, of patients in addiction treatment centers um, are diagnosed with learning differences. Um, that seems like a huge overrepresentation. Like, I mean, that you know, it almost gets to the point where I'm starting to go chicken egg, right? Like, what what do you attribute that to? Mainly, what I attribute it to, and I and I have the same levels of is that real, you know? Right, right. But my experience tells me yes, um, absolutely, because of what we know, and especially nowadays, what we know about shame, what we know about. Um, isolation Mm. though you know imagine being that five and six or seven year old kid that i mean think about the daily reality if if learning to read and spell is the primary job in some ways of young you know education and then you're spending you know several hours a day trying to avoid being found out Mm. or being embarrassed and shamed you know, now we know the consequences of what that is. Mm. We talk a lot about trauma, but trauma, just like, as far as I know, trauma, just like learning differences, has a range. You know, so for example, in, in you know, and this is where the, the, um, the statistics maybe get so high, you know, upwards of 60%, is, you know, if you include, just like with autism spectrum, you know, there are people who are mildly on that spectrum and people who are severely. There are people, you know, um, like, uh, what's his name, Richard Branson from, you know, Virgin Airlines, you know, who's ADD and dyslexic, according to him. Richard Branson. You know, he, he, Richard Branson, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's, I'm sure, on the mild side. So that's part of what makes the... Uh, the statistics so high is you've got a range of mild to severe. Does mm. that make sense? Oh, 100%. But yeah. but I'm always I'm always like you know struck with this idea of learning differences because mm-hmm. like I sometimes wonder is it the is it the construct of the system that's set up that's kind of antiquated at this point, right? Like right. the majority of public education in the United States anyway is still sort of post-industrial revolution oriented, like it's a very different need for education today than what there was before was kind of preparing people to go into the workforce or the military or something else just to get, you know, the next stage. Today with technology Mm -hmm. and all the things, we're in a totally different realm of knowledge, accessibility, tools and all that. And yet, you know, as a father, I go even in the most progressive schools, my kid's in a pretty progressive charter school. Um, you know, my 10 year old Ronan, he's recently diagnosed with dyslexia. And, you know, the thing that kind of, anyway, the thing that I keep trying to come around to or just, just see is like, yeah. is it, is it, is it always this sort of, um, 
you know, why do we always name the patient? You know what I mean? Like, why do we always name the student, even though like the systems themselves are really kind of ill-suited in many ways. And I I don't have an easy solution for that. You know, you got 30 kids in a class, you got no money in a situation, you're doing the best you can. I get it. Like, I think teachers are unbelievable. And any teacher, anybody who even goes into teaching today is a hero in my mind. But it it, it still feels like we continually, even in our best of intentions, stigmatize people who don't fall in line. And yet a lot of those people are the most brilliant among us. And so at what point does it not become a disability and rather just a learning difference or style difference? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I do know exactly what you mean. Uh, um, You know, and uh, the, the simple the answer is, first of all, you don't have to choose. In other words, um. You don't have to choose between one should never be afraid of getting good diagnostic information. Hmm. On the other hand, you know, on the other hand, getting a label of dyslexic or any any other diagnostic label has consequences. Hmm. One of the consequences that people don't talk about is that it's only a very partial description of a person. When you say someone is ADD or is dyslexic. That's a pretty broad umbrella, mm. and the variations within that are huge. Mm. Second, you know, the response to those diagnostics is the most important part. Like, okay, we know that your kid, you know, is struggling to quickly access, you know, decoding principles for when he reads or and or spells. You know, the the most important then part becomes not stigmatizing them and giving them the correct teaching. Mm. And, you know, we've been going on with this for so long. I mean, you know, I guess I shouldn't say don't get me started because I'm getting, we're getting me started, but so much of the fault really is in a few very clear places. One of them is how teachers are educated Mm. in the universities. Mm -hmm. They're not using the science. Um, and and so you know you you see what you see, which is that even in the most progressive schools, you know the right things don't happen. You know people are fond of talking about uh, some some aspect of dyslexia being dysteachia, meaning if we had the right approaches to working with learning differences, uh, you know then it wouldn't be so stigmatizing. Mm. But here's a question, you know, in general is. We've been going down this road for a long time, or I've been going down this road for a long time. And part of where it comes down to is money, because schools are underfunded Mm. and teachers are not well enough educated in terms of the science of reading. So you put those two things together and kids are bound to be underserved, let alone the kids on the autism spectrum. Mm. So for my money, except for a very small percentage of kids who are really highly dyslexic or very significantly on the autism spectrum, most of the challenges could be met not by creating specialized programs, but by having more of a universal design so that instruction reaches the broadest range of learning styles or or cognitive styles so you know it's just like building a ramp on a sidewalk yeah but instead of having just one you may you have multiple portals right is the idea so that various people can connect in different ways not just one or two 
right? Correct. Yeah, different methods of instruction, different mm. approaches to assessment, mm -hmm. you know, all sorts of differentiation. And that's not late. It's, it's knowledge intensive, but mm. not hugely so. And it's certainly not economically, um, you know, significantly challenging. Another thing you hear a lot these days, obviously, you hear people say so-and-so or this kid or this person's on the spectrum, right? What is yeah. the spectrum? Can you, can you give a little description as to kind of what, if, the, if that's along a continuum um, and the spectrum is in between, what's one end of the spectrum and what's the other end of the spectrum? Uh, and what is the spectrum? <laughs> Yeah, the spectrum, the, the good old spectrum. You know, I guess if I think about what are the primary deficits of people on the spectrum, you know, if I, and, and, and that's what I meant by looking below the labels, is looking at, like, what are the competencies that are involved? And, you know, people on the spectrum, you know, are struggling with things like ambiguous language, you know, meaning, you know, metaphors and things that have double meanings. Mm. They're struggling with recognizing uh, cues, physical and nonverbal cues of other people. Um, they're struggling with having a different sort of sensory system. Mm. So their response to light, sound and touch is, you know, often quite different mm. than, you know, than most other people. Mm. Uh, they're struggling, you know, with with what they put their attention on. So when you look at babies that wind up really fitting that profile of autism, you know, when you look at where their attention is mm. and it tends to be on things and not people, mm. uh, you know, all of the, so all of those markers and I'm, I'm, I've missed a few, I'm sure, but those are the primary and main ones. So if you think about all those things, then whether they're mildly impaired or challenged or significantly impaired or challenged, that gives you that spectrum, mm. right? Okay. People who are, you know, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. I just want to add one thing because um, every time I mention this, it seems to um, really turn a light on for some people. And recently I, I, I got a message from a parent who listened to another podcast I was on and her level of response to what I'm about to say was, she said it dropped her to her knees, is how she put it. And mm. she, thought, you know, she has a kid in a wilderness program who's on the spectrum. But anyways, um, and this is also part of, you know, I think you asked earlier of how far do we need to go? Well, most education settings or treatment centers, even wilderness treatment centers or other kinds have come to the point where they get it that kids on the spectrum don't recognize the body language or the social cues of other people. What's often, most often missed and not recognized or misunderstood is that they that kids on the spectrum also miss their own cues. Mm. You know, you and I have cues mm. that tell us how we're feeling. Mm. Our body tells us stuff. We notice our shoulders are hunched or spending too much time on the internet or we got a headache, you know, and we can take steps for self-care. Mm -hmm. Kids on the spectrum, because they're struggling to easily access that kind of information, they don't recognize their own cues. So they tend to, they tend to spiral down 
really fast as mm. a result of that. Mm. And I don't know how much that makes sense, but it's really clear um, that that's a big piece, you know, of of education is, you know, in treatment centers included is to help kids on the spectrum start to tune into that there are things called signals mm. that we that they can come in physical forms and thought form and various things and but I mean that can even be things and, like not knowing when you're hungry or not knowing when you're tired, yes. right? Like not listening yes. to to those not it's not so much about not listening, it's just having a lack of awareness that that's even going on. Right. Yeah. Right. And then it makes sense yeah. that then all of a sudden that hits critical mass and you kind of break down, right? Like you go, yeah. oh, I'm exhausted or I'm so hungry, I haven't been you know, whatever those things would be. Um, yeah. the concept yeah. of self-care seems re- relatively dissonant given <laughs> the accessibility of even exactly. knowing what your cue is, right? So right. that, that right. makes sense. So sh- shifting a little bit. So, you know, in our field in general, I say our field kind of, I think mm-hmm. most people who listen to this know what we mean. Um, you know, how do you see, how have you seen it evolve, you know, over the last 30 years, 25 years, whatever mm-hmm. it is, how have you seen it evolve, especially in the area of, you know, private residential treatment, wilderness programs, multiple different therapeutic boarding schools now, um, tons of different resources locally and all over. But how how have you seen it evolve over the last 30 years? And just could you speak to that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, thinking about, you know, the fact that you and I met each other in some form, yeah. you know, probably mainly through Saul, through those, you know, CD days. Yeah. And, you know, that, that, that's part of, I think, how could you have a conversation about the evolution of treatment programs? Without, we're shared trauma survivors you know. from that as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, that was also the place where I continued to do some significant self-examination. Um, you know, but I wasn't scarred in the way that some of the kids were. So right. some of the less beneficial practices mm. didn't, you know, it didn't devastate me mm. as it did some of the kids, but I learned a lot in that setting. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned, I remember, uh, you know, those, that was not too long at, when I joined CEDU, I had just come from a five year first stint as an educational consultant. And I was sending kids to various treatment centers, including CEDU, and they were getting helped mm. a lot, mm. but I was, I was living in the Northeast and I started to really learn from some excellent people about, you know, things like nonverbal learning disabilities and autism spectrum, and et cetera. So when I got to, you know, some of those confrontive group therapy sessions that we called RAPS, you know, and the, the focus was on what was called honesty. Mm. But when, when I saw these kids that were so clearly um, misfit socially and were on the spectrum, and I knew they didn't have a language for emotion. Mm. They didn't, they, their brains were wired differently. I won't go into some of the brain differences, but it was pretty significant. And mm. to watch these kids get beat up emotionally because the councils thought they were being dishonest or withholding mm. was really hard for me because I wasn't really built at that time for knowing how to confront people, right. you know, my own peers. Right. And they were really good at confronting and kicking your butt if you didn't toe the line. Right. Anyways, so, you know, there were a lot of, there was a lot of things. And so how have things changed? 
you know, they've changed a lot, you know, and, and the clinical aspect of therapy seems to have gotten much deeper. Um, there's certainly a lot more options so that parents have a lot more options. Mm. And, you know, overall, like I've listened to, you know, and learned from some of your previous guests, you know, like Brad Reedy and, and people in the trauma field who talk much more about, you know, therapy as an invitational process. Mm. You know, I, I sense that that's a really important component of Aim House, mm -hmm. you know, and the work that you guys do is that, yeah, it's therapy in some form or it's personal growth. But, you know, personal growth speaks much more to, you know, getting the buy-in of the student or the mm -hmm. client and, mm -hmm. and having it be open to invitation. Mm. So I think therapy's gotten more invitational. Mm. Um, one thing I would say that I was thinking about it earlier is, you know, to somehow, the you know, the work left to do, particularly in the area of, you know, this learning variation that we're talking about, whether it's dyslexia or autism, you know, is, is, is struggling and wrestling with this one. You know, at least this is what I struggle with. And what I'm learning through is when, when I started to learn from psychologists or counselors or therapists or people like yourself, you know, I started to hear that research was saying that the most or one of the most important parts to therapy and treatment is the therapeutic alliance and that relationship. And, you know, and that kind of resonates with me pretty mm. easily because that's the skill that I started out with. Mm. However, you know, until I learned the skills of whatever the skills that I, the hard skills that I learned to add to the soft skills, mm. you know, I don't want the fact that the therapeutic relationship is maybe the most important to become the reason why we don't push ourselves even further mm. to learn, you know, the hard sciences of trauma or the hard sciences of, you know, learning and, and, ha you know, to think about as a clinician, you know, I would like to have all clinicians think about how does learning, how do learning differences, how does that impact how the kid receives the messages I'm sending. Hmm. Yeah, you like know, almost like if, it, if, 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 if I have an approach that's invitational, it may not be the same invitation, <laughs> right? Or presented in right. the same way that there's different ways to access. And I love what you said before, because I hadn't really thought about this before, but it's so true. You know, back in the early days of like, you know, the strategy, whether it was through kind of restrictive wilderness programs or deprivational experiences mm -hmm. or, or the raps at CDU back in the day, the concept was, you know, behavior's been bad, you're in denial, I'm way oversimplifying, but it's kind of how it was at the time. Right. We're gonna break you down, right? We're basically gonna break you down to the point where you're in tears and you're, and then we're gonna build you back up again after you, after you mm -hmm. quote unquote, get honest, right? right. And right. and so, yeah, for, for, for a certain amount of the population, that worked really, really well. <laughs> you know, it's like, it worked really, really right. well, that, that's perfect. Yeah. And for other people, that turned out to be abusive, right? Um, right? Because it was completely inaccessible to them and it only drove them further down into who they are, or to, to who they yeah. are, they're the worst fears. So um, similarly now, what I hear you saying is like, it's really about tweaking approach. It's like, we can have the awareness, but we need to go a step further in terms of really understanding the diagnosis of our client and how that impacts the way that we interact with them is huge. So, and it takes a yeah. lot of training, right? 
It takes a fair amount. And you kind of add that, um, you know, a couple of things. One is to come to grips with our own learning profile. You know, Mm. if, if, you know, even just think about, you know, I keep using wilderness as an example because I just have a kid that's uh, a kid slash client that's, I'm so happy about that's coming out of a successful wilderness program Mm. right now. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of on my mind, but, you know, and I know how important, you know, line staff is, Mm -hmm. you know, like I know how important field guides are Mm -hmm. or, you know, Danny Conroy gets the, you know, deservedly gets the name, you know, recognition, but I know, you know, I know I've heard you talk about it's, it's the line staff, you know, the the ones that are doing the day to day, they're the ones that are really the rubber meets the road and they're building those relationships. But, you know, uh, I remember when I was uh, observed as when I was leading in a in a classroom setting and, you know, part of the feedback I got was how my way of learning and, and thinking was my go to, you know, so training faculty on what's your learning profile and mm. is that the best way to deliver because most people deliver what they think of as important information whether it's emotional or educational Hmm. based on their own learning profile if you're a talker you talk you know Hmm. for example and and that's not exactly always the right way to deliver it for another person well and and similarly to what you're saying i think if you're not aware of that and educated on different you personalize things in a way that are unnecessary in other words you know this, this kid doesn't like me it's like they might not have a clue what I'm saying right now, or they just don't, it's not even, it's not about not liking. It's like, it's not connecting because I'm not meeting them where they are at. I'm meeting them with my shtick, you know? And, you know, and, and then it's like a blank face. And I can remember certainly earlier in my career just going like, nope, we just don't connect. And now I look back and I go, oh man, like we didn't connect because I didn't understand that person, you know, or I didn't provide the, you know, the on-ramp, you know? Um, Want to hear something? really perfect example it's just you know is is an example out in the field i had um i had a young man who uh, was the older brother of the boy in treatment and he was coming out by himself the older brother was to try to address the relationship with the identified client in the wilderness and it was going to be a big momentous potentially a momentous time because they had some real issues that were part of their family dynamics. And, and he, and and it was great that he chose to come, you know, at first he resisted this older brother Mm. and he came and, you know, he had a, we thought we had a fairly good idea of what was in store for him because he went out to base, you know, to camp, um, whereas, you know, brother's group was, and then he threw up all sorts of resistance to doing any kind of work. And he, you know, when he was asked these questions in verbal form, you know, about unpackaging his family relationships, he kind of called BS on it. And he said, you know, this is, <laughs> he said, this is not the time and the place for therapy, which I thought was kind of funny. That's hilarious. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, here's the thing is, it was my, as a consultant, it was my miss because I knew that this kid was significantly dyslexic, mm. who's now learned to read well, mm. but 
but I knew that his processing speed for language was slower than most people. Hmm. And so when put on the spot, asking verbal questions, you know, that was, I should have seen that coming. And I, I, you know, should have um, alerted the, the therapists involved that, you know, maybe there's a different way to approach getting inside to this older brother because here's his profile. Hmm. Because for kids like that, talk is cheap mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. but that's the value that they state but the mm -hmm. processing part of that is 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 part and parcel of the dynamic too does that make sense absolutely absolutely yeah um so sanford has an amazing book if you have not read it it's called a light within it's a children's book and it talks a lot about well i'll let you talk about it sanford but i i interpret it really as is a book that really helps kids learn how to deal with anxiety and the feelings that are going on inside them. Um, we talk a little bit about the inspiration of the book and what brought you to write it. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I was working with a group of little boys, which I didn't usually do. I usually work with older kids, but I wound up uh, having a small summer group of six-year-old boys who were all struggling to learn how to read and spell and there's this one just beautiful boy who um, who was fit that profile, but he ha also had some significant anxiety and separation anxiety. And uh, I, I guess I knew about it, but it's one thing to know about it and then to see it in full bloom. And mm -hmm. the kid actually enjoyed coming to class, but three out of five days of the week, he would either you know, wind up not making it. And his mom would send me an email, that mm. can't get him out. He's throwing a fit or he would, you know, act that way in the hallway of my office until I finally used my strategies and got him in and settled him down. And it was pretty, you know, tiring for him, of course. And eventually he would settle down and he would kind of get the success that he needed mm. in terms of the reading and the spelling. But he was just, but it kept repeating itself, and all the tricks I tried only had marginal effects. So I thought, well, we learned by story. Why don't I try to write a story that helps them? So um, somehow or other, it, it was one of those books, writing doesn't always happen this way, but it just almost wrote itself, and it came very easily to me. And it's a story of a couple of animals that struggle with some social anxiety, a turtle and a bear. And... Um, and I wrote it, and uh, and all the kids loved it. And you know, there's parts where you can repeat along, but it's basically a story of, you know, finding your own light within that gives you access to some social power and strength that you didn't think you had. And, um, and the kids really liked it enough, and parents seemed to enjoy it. So I thought, well, maybe I should try to turn it into a book. Mm. And so I contacted. So that was the inspiration and the, the, the secondary piece that I just love to remember um, and share is that uh, when I was getting started in the field of dyslexia, I helped start a school for dyslexic kids. And that's where I got some great training from some masters. And we started with six boys um, in this school that's grown to be nationally known. But anyway, six boys and one of them was a scared, timid turtle of a boy who mm -hmm. hid in a shell who couldn't read a spell mm -hmm. and who was also highly anxious and he's now my illustrator because he's a brilliant <laughs> artist so great so great i love yeah. that i love that yeah it's like 
30 years later. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's really the thing, you know, um, that I see is just that there's a genius that there is a unique genius within all of us, I believe, you know, whether it's, mm-hmm. whether it's something that's visible or not, that it's there. And I think, you know, in some ways that's something you and I both share is the, the, the belief that underneath whatever the mm-hmm. presenting behavior is or diagnosis is or whatever else is that, um, there is a light, you know, that, that light is yeah. there and it's, it's our job as professionals to try to help, remove some of the or or work in tandem to 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 let that shine through however that might be you know and and um you know i just want to say we got a wrap here but i just want to say that i feel like you have really made a tremendous contribution to our field you've brought this conversation very much out front and um and been a champion you know a, a champion for people who didn't have a voice in this area or a, a recognition in this area and so um you know it's just really important for me to be able to say to you thank you you know thank you from those students who you've affected in the school you started and the places where they're doing and just all of the 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 conversation moving forward i think has helped i know for me personally it's helped me just from seeing you speak at a conference a whole bunch of light bulbs went on with me, which then ended up affecting the way we work within our program here and the way that we approach it and the way that I parent and even getting my kid tested, like the ripple effect of the passion and the work of, of what you've brought, um, it has, has been tremendous. And so on behalf of, on behalf of all of us, I want to say, thank you. It's been, you've, you've made a tremendous contribution. You really, and, um, and, and glad you're still young enough that you'll continue to do that. And, um, (laughs) Yeah, we keep losing. We keep losing all these friends, but we gotta we gotta hang in here. So uh, because there's more work to be done, you know. And um, and uh, and uh, and I appreciate you taking the time to 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 come on and and share this with us today. And um, just value you as a person, Sanford. I think you're just a you're one of the you're just like one of these people who's just really of integrity and who I really appreciate and love very much. So thank you so much for for taking the time to be here, and thank you for all that you've given to our field because it's been tremendous. So. You're welcome. Thank you, Danny. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if people want to find your book, again, the book is called A Light Within by Sanford Shapiro. I think it's on Amazon and everything, right? It's uh... Yeah, there's another one, too, that's going to be coming out ah. called My Light Within My Dyslexia. Oh, nice. It's a dyslexia. Oh, and great. It's written for 10-year-old kids, so we'll get one to your boy. Thank you. We definitely will. I appreciate that. And we'll keep on keeping on, and hopefully I'll see you in person uh, sooner rather than later, my friend. I think we will. Excellent. Thanks for coming on. All right, take care. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Okay, everybody, this has been the I Can't Help You podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for Lily for putting all this together for us, as always. Miss Lil Will over there. And Justin over on the boards. Justin, thank you. And um, we appreciate you. We're coming to you from the Made Life studio. And um, we look forward to our next episode. And really appreciate you all tuning in. Thank you so much.